We want to thank God for his word. We want to thank him because his word is true. His word is powerful. His word is sharp. And we're so amazed by the discovery of the word of God today. Did you just enjoy that presentation by Brother Newman? And, and happy birthday as well, Brother Newman. God is so good. Amen. So we're going to wait on the Lord today. Hallelujah. His word is good. Our theme for this month have been restoring hope. Hope is a word we're hearing a lot about today. And there's a reason for that because these are dark days. And as we go through darkness, we need to anchor ourselves, not on the darkness around us, but on the hope that comes from God. And so today I just want to say to you, God is restoring hope in this season. And I want to declare that redemption will come. Redemption will come. In this book of Ruth, we have been looking at the idea of redemption in the midst of famine and trial, in the midst of barrenness. We're now in chapter four of the book, and we want to pick up from where we left off last week. At this stage in the final chapter of the book of Ruth, the broken, poverty-stricken wife of Elimelech is hoping for redemption of her husband's land and his posterity. Naomi's hope rests on the favor of a man named Boaz, a relative of her late husband, who had the power to change her plight by purchasing the land and keeping it in her family. She's also hoping for a marriage that would, that would extend her husband's posterity for many generations to come. And this marriage between Boaz and her daughter-in-law is exactly what Naomi is hoping for. The marriage would give him the power to redeem her property. She would otherwise would have to sell it in order to provide for her means. But this was against the Mosaic law of distribution of land and the idea that the land belonged to God and it was God's desire to keep the land in the designated clans. And so Naomi wants to keep that, that, that law of land distribution. So she's hoping that Boaz would step in and buy the land. That was Naomi's plan. And of course, it fit in with God's plan. But God would have his way in everything in our life. Naomi had a word for her daughter in Ruth to go and spend the night in the threshing floor with Boaz. Because she was so concerned that Boaz may not be been able to make the move and so she wanted to preempt him asking Ruth in marriage and so we know the story in chapter 3 Ruth went and literally proposed to Boaz on the threshing floor but Boaz said my daughter I agree that this is what you want 
but you would need to wait. I, I, you would need to wait. And I want to say that sometimes waiting is difficult for all of us. But the word of the Lord comes to you today. If you are like Naomi today, feeling bitter, feeling abandoned, feeling lonely, feeling lost. I want to say to you, as I would say to Naomi, Naomi, God's got this. Just be of good courage and wait on the Lord because God's got this. I would probably quote Psalm 30 and 5 to her and says, For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for life because weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I would probably say to her, Naomi, Psalm 24 and 14 says, Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I would encourage her and I would say, Naomi, Isaiah 40 and 31 says, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Naomi and Ruth, wait. Redemption will come. Redemption is coming. Waiting is a part of God's plan. We all want results tonight, but sometimes we will have to wait until the morning. And so we know she went to the threshing floor at night and lay at his feet literally proposed to him according to the rights of the leveret marriage. And Boaz, the story tells us that Boaz was ecstatic. He could not believe that this young woman would value him enough to want to marry him. He said, there are many men that you could choose from. Young men, whether rich or poor, and yet you see value in me. He was excited about Ruth. He had everything that she needed. And as much as Boaz was ecstatic by her offer to marry him, he said, you must wait. Wait until tomorrow. Because you see, he understood that though he had the means and the opportunity to take her on as his wife, there was a legal process and his desire for her would have to wait in order that the marriage be properly and legally acknowledged. Waiting was hard for all parties, for Boaz. He realized that Ruth had choices. He deemed that if he did not act upon this situation, she could easily choose someone else. And he wanted to make sure that Ruth was his fear and square. And so he said, wait because there is another kinsman redeemer who has 
who is more closely related to Elimelech. In other words, he has the right to marry you and redeem Naomi's land ahead of me. His future hanged in the balance, totally out of his control. It was in the mercy of the kinsman redeemer, the unknown kinsman redeemer, and the council of 10 men who would meet at the town's gate to give the final stamp of approval on this marriage. But you see, they did not know that God was also in control and that God had allowed Ruth to return from Moab for a purpose and a reason. Amen? It is God who perfect our plans. He knows the way we take, but God perfects the plan. And such as it is in our lives as well. Sometimes we want to run around and take control. We want to control all the pieces of our life instead of waiting on God. And this is an example of how sometimes we strategize. You know, Naomi felt that if she asked Ruth to put on the best dress and to put on the perfume and to go down to the threshing floor that night, that it would happen like that. But Boaz was a man of integrity. And he wanted to make sure that he took on a wife in the, in the correct way. Amen. And glorify God. I just want to make the point that our best plans can be subverted if we run ahead of ourselves and try to circumvent the rules, the laws of God. And so is, as we read into chapter four, I'm going to just read in sections. We're going to read chapter four. If you could turn in your Bibles with me. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate, verse one, and sat down next that there, the next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. So Boaz said, come over, friend, sit here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. Then he said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of the, those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, the kinsman, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, 
to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. <laughs> At this, the next of the kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, he said to Boaz, for you can redeem it. There's a lot of thinking about this, about what does he mean he would put his inheritance at risk. Perhaps maybe he had grown sons of another wife. Perhaps Boaz was unmarried and was in a better position without to own her and the property without damaging his own estate. We don't know, but obviously Boaz was in a better position to redeem it. And I want to say that he knows that his best plan could have been subverted by, by offering this opportunity to the kinsman redeemer. And I imagine that since that night in the threshing floor, the night before, he could not sleep. Naomi said, the man will not rest, she said to Ruth, until he settles this. And as he invited his family member to hold court with the 10, he had developed a careful case and maybe just a little deceptive because he held back in telling the kinsman redeemer that Ruth was a part of the package. And when the man refused, oh, Boaz was relieved because we can tell by now that he was in love with Ruth. I love his arguments. The first argument was based on land rights. Naomi is back, he said, and wants to sell off the land that belonged to Elimelech. Nowhere else in the narrative did we hear that. But that is what Boaz assumed. Or perhaps Naomi had said to others that she would have to sell the land. He said, since you are the closest relative, I thought you should know about this before it occurs. If you will redeem it, do so. Or let me know your intentions, because I come after you and it could fall on me. At that, the kinsman declared, I will, I will, I will redeem it. No issues there. <laughs> but then Boaz threw in the second part of his argument. Perhaps he held back intentionally of saying that a marriage with, with Ruth is the main reason he's having the meeting, but he didn't. Verse 5 says, Boaz said, the day you acquired a field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. That's another law of leverage, leverage marriage. And wow, he refused. He said, no, I can't. If I take Ruth on, I will mess up my whole inheritance. And so Boaz got the response that he wanted. He wanted to hear that the kinsman redeemer would refuse Ruth so that he could marry her. So the redemption of the land and of Naomi's estate 
was passed on to Boaz. This is the answer for Boaz, but also the destiny of God. The destiny of God. God was working all things out together for his mission and for his plan for the people of Bethlehem. And you know, sometimes when, when plan seems to go awry and we don't know what to do, the practice that we should all have is to submit our plans to God and the blessings will follow. I guarantee it. I guarantee that if we submit our plans to God, blessings will follow. Now let's look at chapter three. Uh, let's continue the chapter four, sorry, verse seven to 12. It says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. One took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of the people, today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Machlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Machlon, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate along with the elders said, we are witnesses, praise the Lord, marriage complete. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. In other words, prosperity, prosperity much children, amen, like the 12 tribes of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. The legality is now completed. As was their custom, a sandal was passed on from one to another as a signing that the agreement was sealed. Once this part was completed, the witnesses turned to blessing the couple, channeling Boaz's great-grandmother Rachel and Leah and Tamar and prophesying over this union with Ruth to produce a children and a house like Paris. Some ancient perspectives view Paris as a kingly figure, a successful son of Judah in spite of his interesting birth story. They wished for Boaz to become a great leader in Ephrathah and a prominent name in Bethlehem. 
This demonstrates how when we are willing to put aside our desires and submit to God's plan, blessings will always follow. Amen. The other king's man declined taking on Ruth and thus was exempted. But God had a plan, a bigger plan that was significant to the inheritance and the lineage of Boaz. And we will see how God weaved his plan. Amen. A plan that was an everlasting plan. I want to make another point that nothing can subvert the plan of God for our life. Nothing. Nothing. Always remember that God has a sneak preview of all the scenes of your life from before it started to the closing act. God has already seen ahead of the journey. Amen. Ruth chapter 4, 13 to 17. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and bore a son. Praise the Lord. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women in the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. The story starts in tragedy and ends with Naomi, the wife of Elamineh restoring the house of Judah. The marriage of Boaz and Ruth is not some romantic, cute, fairy tale, as some would want us to believe. No, no. Verse 13 tells us of the marriage and of this first child. This was and is a big deal to God and the people of Bethlehem. Elimelech tried to run away from God's plan and went off to Moab to look for better opportunities. But there he died and his sons as well. Whatever child he would have had would have been part of the narrative. But the one daughter-in-law who came back with Naomi was the one to provide the firstborn of the restoration of Bethlehem and the people of Judah out of a, a time of peril and anarchy and famine. God was restoring not just wheat and barley, but God was restoring a people. God came through for Naomi by providing a daughter-in-law who was fiercely committed to her and to her God. The Moabite Ruth would bring new life 
and new hope to the aged Naomi. This child resting on her breast was a symbol of her hope. The women who made some declaration of hope, they remembered Naomi's bitterness when she returned from Moab. She told them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasantness. Call me Mara because I am bitter because of the Lord who has dealt harshly with me. But now restoration has taken place. These same women are declaring the happiness that they see in Naomi's life. God has now turned around the bitter to the sweet and they all stand as witnesses. The tide had changed for Naomi and the blessing of the Lord is now declared by the women. In verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a next of kin. And they name his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Amen. God can give blessings to us in our old age. For Naomi, it was this offspring from Ruth. They continue to say, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. What a declaration. In a, in a culture where to have a son is more important than a daughter. And yet they're saying this daughter-in-law is better to her than seven sons. Amen. It's again all about Naomi and the women. Naomi and the women. When she arrived in Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law Ruth by her side, the women did not even acknowledge Ruth's presence. But now they declare that she was better to Naomi than if she had seven sons. Oh, how God can reverse our situation. Amen. This is a tremendous remark because Naomi had two sons who were unable to produce an ear. And yet this daughter-in-law had proved better than any amount of sons, especially because she brought new life to Naomi to replace all the death she had experienced. A major salve for Naomi's grief, her balm in Gilead, expressed by the posture of Naomi carrying the child in her bosom and being his nurse. You know, the whimsical banter of the women defines this moment in the story. It's a new passage in history for the people of Judah. The theme of restoration and the new beginnings. The time of Passover and Pentecost and harvest. Verse 17 said, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The writer is leading us on to something, something new by telling us 
who will come from Obed in the future. And the book is strategically placed by those who archived the story and placed it in the reading of the word of God right before the book of Samuel where David's story begins. The name of the child is Obed, Naomi's son, not Ruth's son, but Naomi's son. This is the declaration of redemption, of restoration for the soul of a grieving Naomi. And the women declared it. You know, God knows how to comfort us and when to comfort us and to bring life in the seasons of our darkness. Amen? Life for a grieving Naomi. And the women declared it. Ruth's love for her, for her mother-in-law had paid off. Ruth's tenacity for her mother-in-law paid off. And God led all the way. And little did this foreigner from Moab know how God would use her to bring life and hope back to Bethlehem. God will choose and use whomever he wishes. God raised up Boaz, another son in the line of Judah, to be the kinsman redeemer and with Ruth the Moabite, a son, his great, 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 I think I got seven, grandfather prophesied would come. That is Jacob. When Jacob was ready to depart from this world, he gathered his 12 sons and blessed them and prophesied over Judah this specific emphasis that would last through the ages. That was in Genesis 49 and 10. J Jacob is blessing all of his children, his 12 sons. And when he got to, to Judah, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. Listen, this was a, 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 a moment in time that was taking place in, in the history of the people of Judah, because the continuity of the line of Judah is essential for the prophetic ministry of God's people. Verse 17b says, Ruth begins an important genealogy for the people of Judah. This son of Boaz and Ruth called Obed became the father of Jesse, the father of David. And as we go into the last verse, of chapter four, it lists the genealogy. Now these are the descendants of Perez, Perez, son of, of Judah. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Ad, Aminadab, Aminadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, and Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse. Jesse of David. Do you see the missiological connection of this 
woman, Ruth and Boaz and this child, God had a plan. I tell you, our job is just to wait and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Amen. You know, verse 18 ends with a portion of this prophecy being realized. Judah had sons with his Canaanite wife, Shua, and his eldest son died. After the death of his wife, he turned to a perceived prostitute who was in fact his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And Judah slept with her. She conceived and bore sons, twins. Perez, one of the twins, was not exactly the firstborn. It's an interesting story. You'll have to research that. But he came forward as the firstborn. He was the one through whom God was going to tell the story of his people. And he was the ancestor of Boaz and was celebrated at this marriage to Ruth. Hope was restored in Bethlehem. Hallelujah. Ruth, the heroine of the story, could not have believed that when she arrived in Bethlehem as a foreigner and a widow, that she would be part of a destiny and a dynasty as the ancestress to an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom that is everlasting, as John noted in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, when he wrote about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 5, 4 to 5, John, John writes and notes, And I began to weep in the vision, weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the eschatological hope of Jacob spoken over his son Judah. And it is still our hope today. We too will one day stand before the Lion of Judah, the one worthy to open the scroll. This is a story of hope and redemption, following famine and loss. It is still our story today that in every trial, in every situation we go through, that we must never give up on hope. Never give up on hope. This is a story of hope. Boaz was afraid to marry a widow and a foreigner, even if it was not popular or expedient to do so. He did it to fulfill God's plan. Bethlehem was restored as the house of bread and posterity after the famine. And Ruth's fertility would mark the beginning of a future of righteousness and order in Judah. This small clan of Ephratites is this little 
in this little town, the birthplace of Israel's greatest king and the birthplace of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. Was only a small place. But as the saying goes, never despise the small things. The prophet Micah would later declare, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrata, you who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who will rule in Israel, whose origins is from of old, from the ancient of days. Amen. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. The hope of Israel was birth in Bethlehem. Hallelujah. The story tells us that God can use you no matter how insignificant your ancestry, your history, or your capacity. God is able to turn your life around even if you feel like an outcast and a less than. When Ruth came to Bethlehem, she felt that she was not worthy to be even called one of Boaz's servants. And now here she is as Boaz's wife and the mother of the firstborn of his house, Obed. You know, this is a, a story of redemption on many levels. In conclusion, I want us to know that God is still restoring hope. Your redemption will come. Just keep your hope today. We must maintain our hope because the more hopeful we are, the more likely our situation will turn around. You know, I read the story, uh, a little illustration by Clarence Claw about hope. And he said, a young lad was hospitalized because of a life-threatening condition. The boy became sad during his lengthy stay at the hospital. And one of his school teachers asked for permission from the nurse to visit the boy in his room to review grammar and math. As they noticed the marked improvement in the boy's condition, the nurse asked him why he felt so much better. And the boy responded that his hope had been restored. He went on further to say, if the teacher is coming to teach me grammar and math, then I must be going to live. <laughs> you see what hope can do? It changes our focus to be a better person. It changes our focus about our future. And in certain circumstances, it can even improve our health. But hope will always improve your situation, no matter what you are experiencing today. May God restore your hope. And today I want to encourage you to wait on God because your redemption will come. Your time of testing will not last forever. 
you know, Kirk Franklin sing a song that admonishes us. He says, you don't have to worry and don't you be afraid. Joy comes in the morning. Troubles, they don't last always. For there's a friend in Jesus who will wipe your tears away. And if your heart is broken, just lift your hand and say, oh, I know that I can make it. I know that I can stand no matter what comes my way. My life is in your hand. Praise the Lord. Hope rises when we understand that life is not all about us. We may not have all the answers. We may not have all the capacity it takes to bring us through whatever we're going through today, but we can put our hope in God and in God alone. Our best plans can be subverted if we run ahead of ourselves and try to circumvent the rule of God. We can submit our plans to God and the blessings will always follow. Amen. So my friends, today, walk in hope. Be restored in your hope. As the letter of Hebrews states in 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand, the hand of the throne of God. Amen. God is our hope. And I pray today that you would rise up in hope, whatever you're going through today, looking unto Jesus, the author, hallelujah, and the finisher of your faith. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you today that our hope is in you, God. We see through the book of Ruth how you restore, you restore, you restore, you restore to a widow, a woman who was poor and lonely and grieved and broken. And God, you restore, you restore life in the line and the family of Naomi. So, Father God, we thank you today for the roots in our life. We thank you today, Father, for supplying all of our needs according to your riches and glory. Somebody is going through pain and heartache today, God. I pray you restore hope in them. Somebody is lost today, God. I pray you restore hope in them. Somebody is lonely and terrified today. Father, I pray you restore hope in them. Someone is confused, oh God, and experiencing emotional turmoil. I pray, Father, that you restore hope today. In the mighty name of Jesus. And Father God, we give you thanks because our hope is in you. Not in our current situation, but in you, God. Because you know us from the beginning to the end and you go before us. We give you praise, we give you honor, and we give you glory today for what you're doing in the life of your people and what you're continuing to do as we continue to put our hope and restore our hope in you today. In Jesus' mighty name. 